Hey everyone, welcome to episode 177 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple. With me is Lee McLeod. Hey, Lee. Hey, Chris. You know what I realized from last episode? What did you realize? We just never introduced ourselves. Yeah, I know. We just kind of went into it. So now people finally know who we are. But so that episode, like... You you goddamn well would not have listened to it if it were your first MTG Grindcast episode. Like, yeah, that, nope. Fair. You're just not interested in the stuff we talked about unless you're, like, deep in the MTG Grindcast consolidated universe. And, you know, you've really, like, dived into the parasocial relationship that the, like, podcasting form represents where it's just like impossible not to imagine the people you listen to as your friends even though you know they don't know who you are because it's a really one-way sort of thing and i say this as a person who listens to many many podcasts and i you know feel like jerry t and also like the mcelroy brothers are close personal friends of mine when they just they just fucking aren't (laughs) i i saw your tweet too there was like a retweet earlier today about podcasting or it was just uh someone filling time for a minute it was (laughs) but you know there's a lesson to be taken from that one minute video which is that you can just listen to it if the audio quality is good enough so you know nice clean audio is really really what it's all about more than anything else yeah that's you already dug at me for having to readjust your volume from my low tones to your higher tones oh that's not a everybody (laughs) speaks at a different volume and it's the job of the audio engineer to correct for that at some point i'm gonna have to come over to your space and perform an on-site evaluation and then hook you up with some sound damping and stuff so we can clean up your uh your room but you know that's a future thing then it'll be perfect yes well it's never perfect never be satisfied so Still no magic going on. Still no previews for some godforsaken reason. Yeah, we're recording this on Tuesday the 5th. And spoilers don't start until Thursday. The 5th? I've been back at work for two days. I have In the office, doing work. Give me some spoilers. I have not been doing an incredible amount of work this week. Oh, I had to catch up on stuff. Well, I had to work last week, so. Ah, see it. That's that's where they get you. I guess that's where they got me. The the trick of vacations under capitalism is that the work's still there. You're just not there for it when it happens. And uh sometimes you got to sometimes you got to pick it back up and just sort of like put two weeks of work into one. But, you know, that's the way it is apparently. Funny side story about work while we're on this topic. I had a call, so I get, I'm working from home this week, or these two days, so yesterday I logged into my workstation and stuff, and I had a message saying, hey, can you call one of the technicians, they want to speak to you, and I'm like, okay, about what? I don't know, (laughs) they just like didn't bother to guess, so I called them, and it's just what he needed was like pretty simple and any of the three people he talked to could have done it, but it's just, it was just my job. 
<laughs> yeah, and so everybody waited until you were back to allow it to get finished. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Love it. There, There is a certain, like, level of security that you feel by knowing either that, like, the stuff that I do, either nobody really is willing to figure out how to do it or or ideally like you're just better at it than other people and so then that gives you a sort of like permanent spot there make yourself a little bit irreplaceable but it really sucks when it's just like oh yeah nobody can do this stuff except me and i keep trying to teach people how to do it but it's not it's not working and i really don't want to do it every time i i really don't mind doing it like it's not a problem because i that is like a huge job security thing which is nice during the mm-hmm. pandemic it's just like kind of annoying when people are being dumb yeah yeah i i know that i will always have a place within the court system as a boomer translator just like making 2020 stuff you know, this, this making the current era's stuff work and make sense for people who just like kind of gave up on things when you started being able to click on things on your computer. So, you know, I got that going for me, I guess, forever and ever. Well, until you're that person and the Zoomers come up and take your place. Right, with their like... I don't know, what is the technology that we're going to be, like, uncomfortable with and never really figure out? Is it going to be, like, displays in your contact lenses and you use gestures to control it or something? Or use, like, micro-eye movements to control it? I probably won't be very comfortable or good at that. It's going to be something complicated, or even just slightly complicated, and I'm just, you know, too old to care to learn it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely... Like, the thing that I notice the most that I'm completely disconnected from is, like, you know, the current crop of celebrities. Like, both, you know, current pop music sort of stuff and also, in particular, like, social media influencer celebrities. Like, I know, like, three YouTubers and it's just, like the three people that i think are funny on youtube and i hate everything else on youtube that's more of a cultural thing though right it's that's not a technology or important thing to have people translate for but i I think i feel like that's where it starts like that's a harbinger (laughs) that you're like falling behind the zeitgeist i mean sure i i I can't put any stock in youtubers either though so (laughs) yeah i mean I, i i feel like and i hope that just general familiar familiarity with technology as things adapt you know like i am always willing to adopt new technologies into my processes for you know like recording the podcast or putting the stream on or like enhancing my video gaming experience and stuff like that so hopefully you know when we have retinal imaging contact lenses i'll just be like okay yeah i can figure this out instead of being like this is too scary for me and i just have no ability to do this anymore well it also helps that like the one of the main things the ways to figure stuff out it has been youtube and you know it's probably still gonna be good for that yeah true as long as yeah as long as that's the main 
but like the main delivery method of tutorials is still accessible. Like if you can't do the baseline of search for this on Google and find the YouTube video that works, like then then you're pretty locked out. But once you've unlocked that basic step, then you can do basically anything in the world at that point. Anyway, what were we supposed to talk about? <laughs> you know, mortality, like your own like inevitable obsolescence before your death, you know, that sort of thing. That's what this podcast is about, right? It is now, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's nothing to talk about because there's very little magic going on. The only magic that has been going on is our own. I mean, you know, there's, there's various quarantine, you know, various of the tournaments that have sprouted up because of quarantine, including we just ran the Modern Mana Traders this past weekend. And so we should talk about the results of that tournament, what we saw during that. And we also learned during the top eight of the Mana Traders tournament that the next Mana Traders series is going to be vintage. So I uh, haven't really had enough time to actually do any work and learn anything about vintage. So let's, I don't know, let's look at some decks and see what I'm going to play some leagues. I want to learn some vintage. So Yeah, I, I will too. I kind of have to. Plus... Though, we, we have to find some people who know what they're talking about, because even if I played Vintage for like a month straight, there's no way I can yeah. get up to the level I would need to be. <laughs> no, we'll we'll grab some, some expert commentary for sure. That's definitely going to be part of what we're doing here. We got to get some people who really know what they're talking about. I, you know, I can shepherd them through. Like, I thought me and Jars did a pretty good job at the top eight when things got wrong. Yeah. I mean, we, so we had some technical snafus, some, you know, not super clear communications with players who, after they split the top four and some of them just kind of disappeared after that, despite that just not being how tournaments with coverage work. Yeah. So basically we were covering the top eight and we covered the quarterfinals. We chose to cover the Aromir because we thought it would just take the longest. Mm-hmm. And it did. So by the time the Aromir ended, all of the quarterfinals had ended, we didn't bother to record a backup match because, you know, once the quarterfinals are done, you go to the semifinals. But the players had arranged a top four split, you know, which is fine. But you still have to play out your matches for coverage. And one of the players just left, just kind of dipped. <laughs> <laughs> and it took a while before we figured that out and what was going on. And I don't, I don't actually know how long the Andrarvis were just talking without any magic being played. It was quite a while. It was quite a while, yeah. And we ended up with one of the matches. The player who dipped ended up, like, quote, scooping the top four, his top four match. And then the other players, like, played a semifinals, but I wasn't able to get it that on my screen. Like, I just didn't have access to either of the players in that match, unfortunately. And... Our, like the backup for dealing with that would be to find the match on Magic Online and spectate it, but they had already started the match, and on Magic Online, you can't find matches that have start that started before you opened Magic Online. They just don't exist, so there was no way for me to put that match up, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely rough, but you guys did a great job of talking through things, and, you know, Jarvis gave his 
sort of breakdown of what he knew about vintage right now. And that was definitely interesting and, you know, a good use of time if you can't put on a, a match during your tournament coverage. And, and luckily we had like a couple of vintage people in the chat who were like really excited about that. Mm hmm. And only a few people here and there asked, why isn't there a match being played? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just one of the things about doing these online tournaments is like stuff like that is going to happen. We are totally at the mercy of our players streaming their games to us. So the more people we have doing that, the more consistently we can get good matches up. And generally, we've been pretty lucky in the past. This was honestly the first time where it like really shown through in such a way that you could tell from just watching coverage how 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 much of a task it is to get stuff on there yeah and it took someone just leaving <laughs> yes <laughs> but as for that tournament itself nothing too unexpected in the overall you know we've got our metagame breakdown and our win rates here definitely uro decks were heavily represented in the format as a whole the omnath uro deck most popular deck in the field at about 10 percent and then we saw various other uro builds including sultai and like teamer wilderness reclamation sort of uro decks that's a big part of the format but fairly diverse format overall we saw multiple different rakdos decks like whatever speed you want you can you can play a rakdos deck of that speed green white creaturey decks green white landsy decks prowess decks uh lots of different stuff in this format and and nothing really running away with the title of like wow this deck is just got way way more powerful things going on than the rest of the field or at least a way higher win rate than the rest of the field yeah, that actually surprised me too, because coming into this tournament, I really thought Uro would be everywhere, and mm -hmm. it just kind of wasn't. Which on one hand is like really cool, because it solidifies in my mind modern as the format where people can just play and will play whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Like they were, this this format is more varied than Legacy is, with fewer cards in it. Well, I mean, this format doesn't have Oko in it, kind of, like, shrinking things down. Uh, yeah, that's true. But, I mean, there are still very strong cards in Modern that define mm -hmm. it like there are in Legacy. It's just that the way Modern differs from Legacy is that the strong cards in Modern seem to be more evenly spread. And not just, like, forcing you to go specific directions or just be outpaced. Yeah, I mean, Modern has kind of always been a format, the format that's best able to, like, adopt and absorb cards that are at the power level of other cards in the format. You know, even stuff as powerful as Uro, like, certainly makes its presence known, but doesn't seem to become oppressive. We've had a couple of Modern bands recently, but the only cards that have really stood out are stuff that's completely egregious, like Oko in Once Upon a Time. So uh, generally, like, you know, everybody's doing kind of like really goofy bonkers stuff. And so a lot of it just sort of bounces off each other. You know, we're having like superpower battles in this format generally is, is kind of how it works. Yeah, there's still a lot of Uro and a lot of Field of the Dead. Those yeah. two cards, or I guess mostly Mystic Sanctuary and Field of the Dead, those lands, mm -hmm. they are very format-defining. Oh, for sure. I, I think that 
the reason that you know, like four color Uro had a perfect 50% win rate over the course of the tournament and the other Uro decks, you know, nothing was below 50%. That was an Uro deck, but they were all hovering around like mid fifties or, or a little below that. The reason that they're not just crushing it is because the rest of the format has adapted to their presence in the metagame and, and kind of the whole meta is defined by its existence. I feel like blood moons, boils, is Relics, Soul Guide Lanterns, all, all that good stuff, pretty much as far as you can see in every right. deck that tries to compete. Or uh, stuff like Ad Nauseam or Hammer Time, or it's just like, just trying to try and kill you. Right. The only cards that you have that matter are like a couple of counter spells that I'm built to beat. And so, that like, I don't care how much life you gain with Uro or cards you draw, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, lots of Blood Moons, kind of the defining feature of the Rakdos decks is access to Blood Moons. Like, you can build... So we saw Rakdos Shadow. We saw some Rakdos Prowess, although the Shadow decks seem a little more common than that. Uh, and I then think we saw... the Rakdos Shadow decks are strict upgrades to Rakdos Prowess. Mm-hmm. The only real difference is that you're giving up the incredible Death Shadow-style creatures for more spells. Yeah. And the spells don't really make up what you're giving up. Yeah, just the the power of having access to all of those Death Shadows as kind of also the perfect things to lure us back because they punch way above their mana costs. So you're, you're getting a huge bonus. You're not just bobbling, like you're putting 8-8s into play. So uh, yeah, I, I definitely prefer the Shadow decks generally. Uh, also prefer them to the mid-range Rakdos deck as well. I I still don't know how people played the mid-range deck. Every time we saw it on camera, it did not look very good. Mm-hmm. Even though it won a game, like it won a match, we saw it on on camera, where it, it just like blood moved them out and still lost the first game. Mm-hmm. Then blood moved them out the next two games, but had a Kroxa. And it felt like those were the only relevant cards in their entire deck. Right. Yeah, and I mean, the rest are kind of like you know, you've got your Season Pyromancers and your Magmatic Channelers that are basically to dig you to your Blood Moon in the Blood Moon matchups. And th- th- yeah, th- that's basically what it is, is a <laughs> Blood Moon digging deck with some Thought Seizes and stuff to make you do that consistently. And that's probably fine since, like, again, most of the Field of the Dead decks, which is a huge portion of the mm-hmm. format. It's just that when it plays against stuff that doesn't care about Blood Moon and isn't like very weak to Liliana, yeah. then it doesn't do anything. Right, right. And even like the Blood Moon against like the Field of the Dead decks, definitely saw games that it was just like, all right, Ether Gust your Blood Moon in that window, I'll make four two twos, and then that's just enough. Like you're because dead they, to these two Because they've got season Pyromancer, Elemental Tokens, and like that's it. Yeah. Yeah, if the Kroxes are dealt with, then your ability to deal with a, like to battle on the board is definitely not super high. Though I will say I really do like Season Pyromancer in the deck. I think Season Pyromancer is a really cool card for modern. I really yeah. like it a lot. I love that card. And it, it definitely makes that deck work. Like the deck certainly wouldn't work without it. Um, nor, you know, this is really just the. These are the colors 
of the red blood moon midrange deck now it's black and red instead of green and red which it was for a while before give up the mana acceleration for some disruption and kind of call it a day and that it turns out neither is that particularly strong yeah they're just not decks that i'm ever super excited to play but they're like okay i'm not i'm not sold on having magmatic channeler in your deck in modern that doesn't sound super appealing to me it was a one three way too often like i thought it would be a four four with war regularity but the The deck's just not built like that yeah it doesn't have that many spells in it. it's got like 12 to 14 spells like you're just not gonna have enough in your graveyard very often it's not like phoenix where you can thought scour some and you get like two for free right like the deck has a ton of creatures some hand disruption and some of its disruption is in the form of moon effects so blockers yeah so so like a bunch of the slots that could be spells because they have like instant and sorcery type effects are not that they're creatures they're permanents so and and you're also not casting stuff like thought scour you're not dumping cards into your graveyard so i i just don't think it's a four four pretty much ever in that deck it is like late game by the time your opponents are trying to cast like their omnats or arrows or their primal titans or whatever yeah and it's just like the game has to be under control by then and if they top deck a primal titan because you're a, you're basically a jund-esque hand control deck they're mm-hmm. going to top deck something and that guy channeler is not going to be able to beat it no no absolutely not uh the selesnia field of the dead decks the reclaimer decks are i think are just totally fine you know they are not a like they're doing what they do in kind of the most direct and like simple coherent way possible and sometimes that's just really good yeah i have no problems with the the green white reclaimer deck it's just i'm trying to get field of the dead online and we're just gonna do it as quick as we can and yeah sometimes it's good enough to beat the other field of the dead the blue field of the dead decks I, I think it's it isn't just generally good against those decks it's bad against the cryptic commands in those decks and like the rest of the time you're matching up pretty well against them yeah i I don't really have that much to say it's just like a solid deck Mm -hmm. i personally like its clean mana base more than the like four color arrow piles Mm -hmm. but i would still lean towards playing a cryptic command arrow deck if i wanted to be like a field of the dead end game plan sure well, yeah, and it's kind of that it's not really a Field of the Dead endgame plan in that way. It's kind of like a Field of the Dead mid-game, like get this thing online fast and start going, uh, as opposed to any deck with Uro, which is like, yeah, I'm going to make an extra land drop or two, but that's my end game is just this inevitability of zombies. And the green-white deck is like, let's make these zombies like as quick as we can yes but i don't think it happens like that much faster than an Uro deck with growth spiral or our promise in it and that's like kind of all of them mm-hmm. because it's not like the old ones where you're playing zertra tomorrow and arborio grave they're just like trying to turn on the titans all the time they're playing elvish reclaimer which is really good but it is slower yeah but i mean but you've got a bunch of Castle Garenbriggs and stuff. Like, your Primeval Titans do get you, like, a lot of zombies way more quick. And it's, like, the the number of zombies that you get once you start getting zombies that's way higher than the, the Uro decks. I still I still just can't give up, like, Cryptic Command with the zombies. That's sure. just so powerful. 
yeah, no, that's a, it's a very good combination and definitely, you know, that matchup can kind of go either way. But if the cryptic command gets drawn, it becomes a hugely uphill battle. For and post board Aethergust is still really good. Yeah, of course. Which is, you know, probably the bigger draw to the blue decks, honestly. Aethergust is so strong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the main draw to the Reclaimer, to the green-white deck is Reclaimer itself. Like, that card is just really, really good in that deck. And if it keeps activating, like, it, it's amazing how far ahead that deck gets. It's, it's so nice. And Jarvis and I kept making the same mistake. I don't think in commentary, but in, like, while we were playing games, we were just mm -hmm. like, all right, second flagstones, go grab two lands. Like, the old legendary rule. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no. You get the one planes. Yeah, because it's, it's just been, like... For the longest time, that's how the legendary rule worked, and Flagstone's the last time I really saw play was with Step Links, where you could play a Step Links, play mm -hmm. a second Flagstone's, and then like attack your opponent for a million. Right. Well, and certainly that was the rule when Flagstone's was in standard, when it actually saw quite a bit of play in in that standard format. So. Yeah, because Smallpox was also in that standard format. <laughs> yeah, and and there was like uh, Flagstone's Edge of Autumn stuff for mostly for pumping Tarmogoyfs really quickly. This is, a, this is a forever ago sort of conversation this was over a decade ago it was over a decade ago it was like 2007 2008 yeah 2007 sounds right yeah jeez that's crazy just reminiscent about old cards like old men eh. <laughs> we already at the top of the show discussed how we were aging so Yes, that's true. This is part of the course. <laughs> uh, we saw so our uh, highest win percentage deck of our you know decks with a, any number of copies in the tournament really were uh, Hammer Time at a solid fifty nine percent win rate, uh, and Dredge showed up and and just took home above sixty two percent. Only six copies of that in the tournament, but those those sort of all in strategies both seem to be very successful. You know even. Obviously, you need to take these numbers with a grain of salt. Yeah, neither top aided, mm -hmm. unfortunately, so they, their wins were not distributed in the correct fashion. Right. Where you could have a bunch, like a couple pilots go X and two, but no one went X and one or had mm -hmm. high enough breakers. So it's a little unfortunate there. But I was actually pretty impressed with Hammer Time specifically. Maybe that's because I hadn't seen a lot of the deck before. Mm -hmm. But that deck has like a lot more play to it than I thought it did. Yeah, especially with Sigarda's aid. Yeah. Turn all your equipment into giant combat tricks. Yeah, that's a nice one. I really, I've been searching for Cigar's aids. I know I own, <laughs> but I, I'm just. I don't think I'll ever find them. Yeah, well, is that like a twenty dollar card now or something? I don't know, and I haven't found them, so I've been afraid to check. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> just, <laughs> just trying to avoid feeling bad for no reason. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely the kind of deck that you look at a list the first time and you're like, haha, that's funny, and you know maybe it stays as a meme deck, but it's it's crept up kind of past that mark in both the amount of people playing it and just how well it did. And also, we accidentally not accidentally, but like I was I I saw that a Hammer Time player was three zero, so I I queued them up to be on coverage. And then realized that their opponent was also playing Hammer Time. But at that point, it was too late. And I was like, well, okay, we're going to have one bad match on up here. But that match was fantastic. Yeah, the match was actually really good. It was one of my favorite ones we covered. Yeah. 
It was so good. I mean, the magmatic theft out of the red version of the deck, which allows you to attach target equipment to target creature, meaning that you can take their hammer and put it onto your creature and it's just staying there for a while. Yeah, a lot of play to that matchup, which was very unexpected. We also saw like a really small misplay to like in the in the tournament for or not in the tournament just in the game for like one of the players mm-hmm. that was what really showed me that like yeah this is not as simple as make them have it you could have actually just played around them having it if you had just played a redundant copy of Sakarta's aid yeah yeah uh, just very surprising to have like it Infect versus Infect is not a good matchup, but this one had a lot more things going on just because, like, the cards were all complicated and weird, pretty much. Yeah. Can Court Outfitter... It didn't come up in the match. Can Court Outfitter pick opponent's equipments? I don't think so. I don't think it can. It has been a really long time since I outfit any Target equipment you control, the target creature you control. (sighs) Okay. I am kind of looking forward... This is not. This is a tangent, but I want the the white god that's been spoiled from uh, Kaldheim. Mm-hmm. I hope there's a whole cycle of like equipment gods because I think it'd be really cool to have yeah. like. More, I know this is more for the Hammertime deck, but I just like having equipment in standard. It's one of my favorite card types, similar to like vehicles, but more my speed. I assume they're not all going to be equipment because then they're all going to feel mechanically like pretty similar to each other, I think. You know, like, yes, the equipment can give different abilities and stuff like that, but a card that's an equipment on one side and a creature on the other side is neat. Five cards that are an equipment on one side and a creature on the other side kind of feel like a bunch of almost the same thing, I think. Yeah, that could be. It depends on what their front sides are, right? Because the white one's like a double strike lord. Right, but like that side is just it's just a bad card, you know. Like it, that's yeah. the fail state is like okay, I guess I can cast this as a shitty creature. But I mean, the other ones can interact in different axes with what equipment does. Yeah, like, they don't have to be all. This is a bad creature and a fine equipment. Right. Well, I mean, I I would prefer it if they interacted in more subtle ways. Like not the front sides don't all have to say equipment on them. You know, yeah. I don't know. We will see what we get. Like, if there's a way to do it so they are all, like, their signature weapon on one side and their 4-4 mode on the other side or whatever that is interesting and fun, then I'm, I'm definitely down. Equipment are neat. And just one of them is a skull clamp. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what One thing that really bothers me about the white one, which we haven't talked about, so I guess we might as well since we... Uh, Have we not talked about this card on the podcast? I think so. Because I have some thoughts about it that I don't remember saying. So this is Halvar, God of Battle. Two white-white for a 4-4 god. Creatures you control that are enchanted or equipped have double strike. At the beginning of each combat, you may attach target or equipment attached to a creature you control to target creature you control. And then on the other side, it is Sword of the Realms, one in a white for a legendary equipment. Equip creature gets plus two plus oh and has vigilance. Whenever equip creature dies, return it to its owner's hand. Equip one in a white. The the like kind of creatures that the equipment works the best with are 
you know, value-y creatures that you kind of want to turn their bodies into substantial things that your opponent has to deal with, so then you get them back. So, like, putting it on, like, a Skyclave Apparition is obviously, like, pretty good. And a deck that would be filled with those creatures is, like, a collected company deck. It'd be really nice if the other side of Sword of the Realms could get hit by collected company so you wouldn't feel bad about putting it into your collected company deck, even if it's just, like, a medium body that doesn't do very much. Like, that would be cool. But I feel like this card just kind of misses on a bunch of different, like, small axes. Like, can only re-equip equipment that's already attached to something. And it can only do that at the beginning of combat and not, like, post-combat. And it's just, like... Well, I actually like that they didn't do it post-combat. Because I can envision the world where everyone's killing their own creatures (laughs) that have plus toughness. After combat damage? Sure. Yeah, I mean, this one this one doesn't give toughness, so that wouldn't well, be... Well, the sword doesn't, but you can play it with other things. Right, but, you know, this thing is going to re-equip its... You know, one copy of this is going to re-equip the other copy of it. Like, that's going to be the most common thing that it would be. Yeah, you equip it to itself so you can play another sword. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do like the... Hey, it's legendary on both sides, so you can draw an extra copy and feel fine about it. Like, that's kind of nice. Um, I don't know. This thing just, like, feels a little clunky, and, like, none of the ideas around it are things that I'm like, oh, yeah, that will be really cool to put in a deck. It just, like, misses in a bunch of small ways that makes me like, yeah, that probably won't do the job. The And that, that's probably just a cycle of gods and stuff artifacts on the back right it's not probably not equipment that's what i would imagine tools that use or what have you right right and and not every god has to be a warrior god who uses a weapon so even in a inherently violent universe like that of magic the gathering yeah i mean before we move off of modern and onto like other stuff sure like the top eight had four it was half a rodex which was weird at the time because yeah, we barely got any Uro on camera before the top eight, so yeah, it kind of felt like we had escaped it. It kind of snuck in from the graveyard mm-hmm. where we thought it was. I already said escape. I used that. I did my punning. <laughs> I had to keep going. But what like super surprised me was there was just a mono green Tron in the top eight, and that was not a deck I thought could really compete. Right. And even, like, it's probably decent to good against the Uro decks, you know, because you always want to play the big mana deck against the the mid-rangey controlly deck, but those decks just have a bunch of counter spells in them, and sometimes that just lines up really well against Tron. Yeah, and Tron was in the past really good against control decks because even if they had a bunch of counter spells, they couldn't kill you. Like, they just couldn't finish you. Right. So you eventually drew another huge thing and killed them with it. Yeah, because it, it takes a lot of hits with Celestial Colonnade to kill you, and you can't start doing that until you also have mana to hold up. And yeah, uh, but just making land drops to make two twos. Yeah, it's all of a sudden forces you to like Oblivion Stone a little earlier, or mm-hmm. Ugin minus for numbers. And then it's just, it, it kind of puts you in weird squeezes where you don't have infinite time to just draw threats to eventually kill them. You, you kind of have to make. Your threats count. Yeah, and and you don't really want O-Stones and Ugins in your deck in any real density in a matchup where they're a Cryptic Command Mystic Sanctuary deck. 
like it's very possible for you to draw things to put mana into that are just terrible against whatever spot they've put the game state into. I kind of wonder what like our Tron player in the top eight played against because I, oof, I was in my head that he they had just beaten up on all of the rock death mid range decks. <laughs> well, but there's a lot of blood moons in those decks. That's true. And and I know that blood moon is not a catch. You know, it it doesn't just beat Tron on its own, and it never has. But these decks are also full of creatures. So if you just go like creature blood moon creature. Like, you're probably going to kill your Tron opponent before they can really do anything meaningful, especially because most of these Blood Moons are in the main deck. So they don't have, like, their Thrag Tusk plan going on or anything like that. I just looked at all of uh, his matches, the top eight player. Mm-hmm. He's played against Rockdust Midrange twice. Okay, <laughs> that's a good it. start. Yeah. But then actually played against uh, Uro two times, Warcolor mm-hmm. Uro, and an it deck, and those are all wins. Mm-hmm. And lost against uh, Amulet. Right, which we saw. Some some wild draws out of that Amulet deck in that matchup. I think we saw like a turn two win with the double Amulet draw, which is kind of refreshing. We haven't seen that in a while. Not a lot of Amulet lately, so. I mean, a lot of people are playing Amulet instead of the Reclaimer deck. Yeah. Because I don't know why. I think people who play Amulet just kind of like the... I have an amulet, I can go, I can really go places, kind of play style. Mm. Whereas it feels a little more rote with the Great White Reclaimer deck. Yeah, and I mean, the Reclaimer deck is way better at beating Blood Moons than Amulet is. Yes, way better. Blood Moon has been one of the main responses to a meta filled with Field of the Dead, whether it's an Uro Dex or, and then Blood Moon's like, fine against Reclaimer, like, you'd rather have it in your deck than not, but I would much rather be playing the deck that can beat Blood Moon with Skyclave with Eladomri's call for Skyclave Apparition. So or Night of Autumn if you don't yeah. have double white. It, it's nice that way. Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, Amulet has just never been set up to beat Blood Moon. But on the other side, Amulet's super fancy, and you know <laughs> it's cool to watch. I like watching it. Yeah, of course. Uh, less fancy these days, but still among the fancier decks available to us in modern. Well, it doesn't get too much fancier. Yeah, so I mentioned that Dredge had a really high win rate with six pilots. Charbelcher also had a really high win rate with six pilots. Did not get to see any Belcher in our top eight, though. Yeah, the only tournament I've seen that it outperformed Oops All Spells, but I don't... It's it's kind of like a toss-up. They're both Hyrule combo decks. It's funny to me that it would outperform... Like, the only reason that I could think that it would outperform Oops All Spells so drastically. You know, Oops All Spells had a losing record in this tournament, uh, almost as, like 41%, while Charbelcher was up t- at 65 Like, that's a huge gap, even accounting for variance. You know, I would think that the reason for that is like, okay, people showed up with Graveyard Hate, so the version of this deck that doesn't care about Graveyard Hate even, like, just did better. But... Dredge also did really well this tournament. So, you know, maybe people hit different things, but the explanation can't be like, yeah, this was just a graveyard hate saturated tournament. Like, well, we do always know that Soul Guide Lanterns and Torment Scripts are way worse against Dredge than that's they are true. against like graveyard decks like this 
where right. if it's on the table you can't win right that's true and and dredge has always been able to beat a copy of those or whatever shout out to the dredge player who blasts all the way two prowess creatures and two soul guide lanterns two soul guide lanterns yeesh <laughs> that was a turn that was uh, one of the best blast zones I've ever seen. The game ended on the spot. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't really understand the cast of the second lantern into the like blast zone it was, that was getting activated that turn. It was a, po- I think it was a really poor keep from the prowess player, mm-hmm. and I think he got a little flustered not drawing what he wanted to. Okay, yeah, that's my like kind of read on it. Yeah, because it, it didn't make happens. a lot of sense. Sure. Um. As, as a little bit of spice, we also saw a surprising performance by a couple of as foretold pilots in this tournament making deep runs. Yeah, one of them went X and 2. I think mm-hmm. they actually both went X and 2. Yeah. But one of them actually disconnected both of their losses. Oh, jeez. <laughs> like, I, I checked because I knew we, they disconnected from one on camera. Right, we saw that one. And I was reading the Discord and they had disconnected earlier in the day oh my God. <laughs> to lose their two matches. Maybe this <laughs> they deck's just, like, unbeatable. The only thing holding them back is an internet connection. Well, I, I got a decent internet connection. I should play some Electro Balance as foretold. You honestly couldn't convince me to play that deck. <laughs> I mean, it's a good answer to Field of the Dead. It destroy is. Destroy all creatures, destroy all lands pretty nice yeah it just requires like a little too much setup for my tastes yeah where i mean when it when it happens it's good and if your opponent takes their time trying to kill you and you can just set it up you're in business so like certainly the more you're set up the the more powerful it is but even without like sacrificing your lands just restore balancing your field of the dead based opponent like they're gonna have more lands and more, and they're gonna have more lands than you, and you generally don't have creatures in play. So like, it's like usually gonna be if you have an as foretold out and just cast restore balance, like it's probably putting you in a decent spot most of the time. Yeah, I I could see that, but you like have to win somehow right. as well, right? And that's and greater Gargadon is like not great at that. Yeah. Like, an Uro and a zombie stops Greater Gargadon from killing them. I mean, if you have Greater Gargadon and Restore Balance, you're you're good to go. Right? Yeah, I mean, that that's if, the combo. If you're just casting Restore Balance for value, like you suggested, mm-hmm. that's, like, one of your win conditions you can use to lock your opponent out, and you're using it to, like, stabilize, which is right. not going to be good enough. That's not great. Unless you are also, like, Ancestral Vision Zing and stuff, too. But Right, then you'd just be Ancestraling first and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, depending. You kind of want Ancestral after... I mean, yes, it, it is weird, because, like, Ancestral first maybe lets you set it up with the Gargadon, but if it's good enough to balance, then you kind of want Ancestral after because of the hand part of Restore Balance. So well, I haven't I haven't played this deck, but I imagine you almost always want to run Ancestral first, because it gives you more chance of getting counterspells so you can resolve your Restore Balance and it can give you a gargadon so your restore balance does something right i mean i think it's it's really game state dependent the thing that really concerns me about this deck though is just the density of uh force of negations in the uro decks yeah especially the ones that aren't four color yeah the ones that are just like three color control decks play so many force of negations Mm -hmm. 
Yep. I think Harry was playing like four Force of Negation, four Archmage Charm in his deck. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, that's brutal. Well, I don't know. What would you play if you were playing some modern these days? Underworld Breach. <laughs> Have you seen what we've been talking about the Discord? Basically, there's several different like Underworld Breach decks that have started popping up here and then. Hmm. And the one I saw was Teamer. It was more... And it's got like Gilded Goose, Mistress Bobble, Box Amber, Chromatic Star, Underworld Breach, Emery. That's hmm. like the... And Grinding Station. That's like the shell. Yeah. With a Thassa's Oracle to win the game. Mm -hmm. uh, the Teamer one I saw plays Renin 6, Uro, and Karn. Renin 6 is kind of an interesting one to me because it's it really turns on Mox Amber. That's kind of what it does. You can mm -hmm. actually cast your Karn the Great Creator and your Uros or do stuff with the mana. Like this yeah. deck uses mana very well. It's not really a... Like Renin 6 is not an important card, but it is a nice it's addition. It's a playable cheap legend that does a thing for you. Yeah, because this... Deck is actually really mana hungry, so turning mm -hmm. on your Mox Ambers and letting you keep like two landers with Ren Six is really nice. Yeah, I mean two land like fetch land land Ren and Six is good against almost every you know it 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 helps fuel you and just keep you going. Even if you know the Ren and Six is gonna die, like that's a distraction and makes your third land drop, and then you can start doing your thing. Like card is just really good if if making land drops is important at all to you. Renin-6 also can kill stuff like Thalia, which can stop you from comboing off. Hmm. So it's pretty cool that it has that mode as well. Yeah, that's cool. The other mode that... Or the other mode. The other version that like Ian and Liquid Dreams are talking about in the Discord, it's like a Grixis one with <laughs> kind of the same core, Stars, Emery's, Grinding Stations, Underworld Breach, Athos's Oracle... But this one plays Luris and Unearth and Thoughtscour. To oh, like sure. Use yeah. your graveyard as extra ways to get a combo piece into play. Mm -hmm. uh, Which just so that, keeps you from playing. Emery is kind of the main thing, right? No, you still play Emery. Oh, do you have main deck Lurises? Yes, the Lurises are main deck. Oh, okay. So you just have more Emery's, really? Yeah, it's not a. It's, it's not a one Luris strategy. It's got three Lurises in the main deck. And okay. you can, being able to top deck either Luris or Underworld Breach mm -hmm. to just like kind of play a bunch of cards off the top gives the deck a lot of longevity. Where the other deck really just relies on Karn, for, Karn and Uro for that. Sure. Gotcha. Cool. So if I were playing Modern, I would start with probably the teamer one because i love ran six and you know it was busted but i could definitely see the unearth version being pretty good too and i would honestly probably just play both of them yeah so sorry i clicked ahead and now i'm looking at vintage decks um, <laughs> we haven't even segued away from modern yet CC. no but you know that counts that's a segue <laughs> You just wouldn't play a modern deck? You're not going to answer the people? Nah, I don't know. What would I play? Mm, I don't know. Probably Rakdos Shadow. Seems like very acceptable and fine. And you get to play Blood Moons. I can tell you're as excited for Rakdos Shadow as I am for Underworld Breach. I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm just not really. <laughs> but... <laughs> All right, let's go to Vintage. Okay, great. 
so I've figured out a flaw with our putting vintage on as a tournament format, which is that our visual deck representations are just going to be totally unparsable with vintage decks. Oh, because they're all one of. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, they're the same size, right? So. Yeah, but like you're going to have a pile of artifacts, which, okay, yeah, those are basically the same in every deck. And then like pile of the blue spells. All of the restricted ones, such as Brainstorm and Ponder and Gitaxian Probe. Tinker. Well, that one is Drywall. a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll it'll be fine. I, I always hated how Watsy did the vintage pictures, which was really weird. The last Eternal Weekend, I think we watched the... It was like you kind of like the Moto pile view. Or card view where you could see all the cards individually mm-hmm. but they were in the most random order where it made you think this person's only like three mocks oh no they're just in like four other places yeah well and we may have to move away from using goldfish versions of these decks because goldfish does sort things in a really weird way so well, what we could do is actually just get moto screenshots of decks yeah it's a little more work actually you know what? i just pulled up this deck on goldfish and all the moxes sort of go in the same place, and then it goes into all of the restricted cantrips, and then the preordains. Uh, yeah, this isn't bad. This could work. This could be just fine. It's until you get to the uh, the decks that have, like, a bunch of three ofs is where it gets tricky. Yeah. I feel like a lot of vintage is ones and fours, though, so... Yeah, I was just looking at a deck with three Hole Breachers, three Sprite Dragon, three Fire Blasts. <laughs> so, I don't even know how to like start going over this stuff. I want to get like an idea. Well, why do we care about Vintage? Hmm? Why do we care about Vintage? What are well, we talking about? Wait, we already mentioned this, because the next uh, Mana Traders is Vintage. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have no idea. I've never played a game of Vintage in my life. Sure. Um, I, I guess I haven't either. Have I not? Wow. Maybe I have. But it I've was a held a vintage ago. deck, but I have not played a game of vintage. I think I've, I've, I don't think, I've certainly not played a game of tournament vintage, but I have like played friends proxied decks against each other is about the extent of my vintage experience. So going to have to get some more over the next couple of weeks. So we got Oath of Druids in first place in this Vintage Challenge. A 4-2 record. So these challenges, I believe, must be quite small. Yes, I think so. The problem with looking at Vintage decks, just to like get an idea of the format, is that a lot of them are hard to parse. Well, and I think not only are a lot of them hard to parse, I think a lot of Vintage is playing your pet or, you know, your vintage deck that you've kind of customized in your own particular ways. Uh, some of the slots are different for different people's versions of decks, and that's just, like, what they prefer to do. Because it's not a vigorously tested format. You know, these decks aren't, like, tempered in the fires of 15-round tournaments or anything like that. Like, people are playing, and I can't imagine a format where you are more encouraged to get stuck in a rut than in vintage 
and it doesn't help that you only get to play it every now and then. Mm-hmm. If there's a challenge every month, I think every two weeks. I'm not sure how often the vintage challenges happen. But the the big tournaments are really few and far between for vintage. Yeah. Oh my god. All right. This <laughs> goldfish has parsed this shop's deck as a sixty six thousand dollar deck. Is it, is it a Golos version? There's the Golos ones, and then there's the Ravager ones. From yeah, what I uh, yeah, know. this is sure, sure. Yeah, this is Ravager shops. Man, are Misha's workshops really this expensive? That's wild. Yes. <laughs> Luckily, they're about one ticket a piece on Magic Online, so much more affordable. <laughs> no, I'm just like baffled. Like they, they Goldfish parsed Misha's workshop as a like nine thousand dollar card which that is not right like maybe a two thousand dollar card you know well, well maybe a little more than two thousand dollars nine sounds incorrect i'm not really gonna guess <laughs> maybe that's know. oh maybe that's because goldfish leans towards the near mint versions of the cards you know it tries to get you like the qu- the quality of a card that you would buy if you were buying a standard card, but that's very different from from a vintage card. Yeah, so it's like looking at TCG player and being like, "How much is a near mint Misha's Workshop?" Which is pretty different from any Misha's Workshop that I mean, I'm not gonna buy any Misha's Workshop, but if you if you were buying them to play in a vintage tournament, you might lean towards the moderately played ones. Depends on how much of a high roller you are, right? Yeah, this is true. But anyways, this is vintage after all. If you click over to MTGO and you see this sixty-six thousand dollar deck is three hundred and ninety-two tickets to buy from Card Order. <laughs> That's about more of my price range. <laughs> Walking Ballista, one of the most expensive cards in the deck. Yeah, as far as the stack decks go, from what I can see, like the Ravager ones, the one with Ballista and. You know, Ravager. Mm-hmm. So you can just play Rage and Chief of the Foundry, I think it's called. The yeah. One. Yeah, that's just a straight up. It's artifact of... stompy, essentially. Yeah, yeah. This is just this is just a stompy deck. Yeah, because all of your artifacts cost no mana. So yeah, it's it's got the lockout actually... things too. It's got spheres, then Thor, the Athos, then Transphere. Yeah, because two of those cards are restricted. <laughs> and Lodestone Golem, which is also restricted. Yeah. And the Golos one is not an artifact stompy deck. It's more of a lock deck. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like Mystic Forge, Crucible, Spyglasses, God Pharaoh statue, and Karn the Great Creator. The one of Karn the Great Creator. Right, also restricted. Amazing. I mean, you know, Karn the Great Creator, obviously not an artifact, but definitely... I mean, that card was just generally bonkers and vintage because of the static ability. But... uh. As far as like all of those restricted artifacts go, it is amazing just like the bodies that Misha's workshop has left behind in its wake of staying unrestricted. Just... Well, eventually all of the Misha's workshop decks will be singleton decks with four Misha's workshops, right? Right, right. Once they have to restrict like Ravager and Revoker and Walking Ballista because they all cost no mana in these decks. Phyrexian Revoker. Too powerful. Too good. Yeah, I mean, you see just from, like, looking at these decks, like, the vast, vast difference having power in your format as an omnipresent, like, part of people's mana bases and part of their game plan and stuff. Like, 
Phyrexian Revoker is just a four of in this artifact stompy deck because it is a, you know, it's a creature that wastelands when it comes into play. Like, that's pretty good. I do love that Dredge is like the true budget deck in this format because <laughs> you have a bunch of bizarre back deaths, but you're not playing any power. <laughs> yeah. I man, how much is bizarre? I I can't I I can't keep directing like the conversation towards the cost of cards, but um man, the reserve list is some hot nonsense. Bizarre is a pretty cool card though. I I mean, obviously it's absurd, but Oh no, I neat. Yeah, I love bizarre. I just like it would be cool if you could buy a bizarre of Baghdad if you wanted to play vintage. That would be neat. That would be neat. But, I mean, you can on Magic Online. Like, this is the only place where you can play Vintage. Yeah, I actually do like that. I know for a long time they just weren't putting Vintage cards online for some reason. Mm -hmm. And then they gave up that a few years ago and just put all the power and all that stuff online. Yeah, and it was cool. And it's like, finally. Just unlocked a format. Like, you're not really allowed to play Vintage in paper. There's, like, a handful of people who have Vintage decks... You have to like take out an insurance policy to go to a tournament with a vintage deck, so it doesn't seem like really what you want to be doing with your time and your money. I mean, I, I definitely don't like begrudge people who love playing vintage and like go to tournaments because I think it's a really cool scene. As far as like, yeah, it's not the player's fault, certainly. Yeah, that's not the problem that I have with it in any way. But it is impossible to get into for in paper. Right. Which is nice that, you know, it exists online now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, certainly my main problem with Vintage as a format from, like, a gameplay perspective is that the restricted list, you know, a certain portion of the restricted list just kind of gets slotted into almost every deck. And, you I, know. I actually kind of like that because... If the core tenet of the format is nothing can really get banned, if, but if anything's too egregious, we'll just, like, restrict it. Mm -hmm. So it leads to everyone having, like, 20 of the same card. Like, all the blue decks have 20 of the same card. But the other, like, 20 cards in the deck kind of determine it. Mm -hmm. And I'm more or less fine with that. I mean, it's because, just what the format is, yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of weird when... In a way, it's good that so many cards are restricted because fewer games are determined on which of your restricted cards you draw it's more like you draw what a restricted you card, I didn't draw a restricted card. it's just like yeah. which of your mocks did you draw and how, or did you draw your time walk first or your ancestral and stuff like that right which is kind of neat well and if everybody kind of always has access to a couple of restricted cards every game then it does change back around to being like what are you doing with your restricted cards like is your thing better than my thing I do have to giggle a little bit at this Oath of Druids deck that effectively casts Gristlebrand and Sphinx of the Steel Wind for two mana, and it just also has four Okos in it. Well, yeah, if you Oko their creature or their artifact, it turns on Oath of Druids. Yeah, I mean, that's true. That's certainly, like, the best way to turn on Oath of Druids, the most powerful card that can do it. So you only have to run, like, two Forbidden Orchards in your mana base. That's nice. Uh, but also just Oko is at a power level where you can run four of it in Vintage. But definitely, like, another defining part of Vintage is you're nowhere near, although, like, mana costs are, are quite low, you are nowhere near as mana-gated as you are in Legacy because 
you have access to artifact mana, you can cast spells off of that, and like wasteland wastelanding each other back and forth is not really a part of the format no is, is wasteland restricted i believe it is no wasteland is just legal and vintage but it's just yeah. not that good because like wastelanding somebody who drew two moxes like is just a waste of time i could see that i know i know i'm used to people complaining about strip line after they played around wasteland <laughs> yeah well <laughs> I mean, you signed up for this format. Them's the breaks, right? <laughs> I, I, think, to... I think Wasteland yeah, are mostly a tech card against Misha's Workshop more than anything else. Sure, yeah. Or Bizarre back then. Yeah, or Bizarre, sure. Right, because if you give them one activation of Bizarre and then you kill it, like, I, they're pretty screwed. <laughs> Yeah, they'd have to have another bizarre. Yeah. What would you start with in Vintage? Just hadn't played the format ever. Yeah, I mean, looking at these, like, challenge lists and stuff, probably Ravager Shops. What's that? Just, I don't know, there's something like... I mean, the deck list is very aesthetically pleasing to me for a start. Just only these colorless mana costs is, is pretty cool. I think that the... It, it's a little less intimidating to me as like a thing to sit down and play. It's like, let me play my hate cards and get a feel for this format. Let me slam some stuff into play. And I also like, as a like complex and fun game mechanic, like I do like Ravager Walking Ballista things. So, you know, I'm pretty comfortable doing Ravager kills. So, you know, just like the places where the power level of this deck exist are things that i'm comfortable with doing and i i think it would be a a way to acclimate myself to the format without getting really frustrated at myself for like screwing up my deck so that is probably where i would start it's actually very similar to what i would i'd, I'd play the goalless version because i think it looks more fun okay mainly because there's more there's less a plan like you're not just playing creatures and attacking mm-hmm so I have to think about more what my opponents can do, yeah, which helps me a lot, even if I always make the wrong choice. Sure. Yeah, I, I just, you know, feel a little safer with the backstop of, like, you know, the after effect of casting my cards is that I have six power of creatures into play, so this game is only going to go so long, and, you know, maybe I can just ballista you out from here. And then after that... This Oath deck doesn't really look like exactly what I would like to be doing. Probably I'd want to play something disruptive and kind of complicated like the like the Xerox deck. Like that's going to require, like I'm going to lose a lot of matches with this deck before I understand the format and how this deck plays out enough to, to actually beat people with it. Yeah, I'm not really ever going to be interested in playing a Xerox deck. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know they're really good, but they're just not, like, what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, that that's totally fair. But... I would rather play Paradoxical Outcome or Doomsday or something. It is wild to me that there are Tarmogoyfs in these Xerox decks. Something where I can tinker into Bolas the Citadel. Okay, I would play a non-Goyf one of these lists, probably. This you one... like Tarmogoyf? <laughs> 
So it looks like there's a couple of versions of these Xerox decks. It looks like there's like Deathrite Shaman versions with a couple of Tarmogoyfs, and then there's Jeskai leaning versions. Uh, and this is like a Dreadhorde Arcanist Lavinia Monastery Mentor. You can only play one Monastery Mentor. That 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 card is restricted. Uh, God, the restricted list is so wild, but yes, yeah, certainly Monastery Mentor in a your deck is full of Moxes format is a bonkers card. I don't know. This version of the Xerox deck looks like something I would be into. Cool. There's also Underworld Breach. That card's nice. Not in the Xerox deck, but in general. Yeah. Yeah. The the storm sort of combo or combo decks or whatever they are definitely a sight to behold how those decks are just formed at this point i mean there's also just a bunch of different ways to combo in those decks like different combos in them right right like and there's just a bunch of like little a plus b's and like little mini plans all of which kill you like the mini plans kill your opponent like they die but oh, I have whole breacher and wheel of fortune this game. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's that's going to do it. <laughs> um, where is one of those lists? I want to I want to click on it and actually see it. Um, there's one in the bottom of the page that I found. That's just the first one I looked at. Oh, is this the the one with sprite dragons in it? Yes. Yeah, that's really cute. Yeah, like like it's really not a storm deck like yes it's got brain freeze in it and an underworld breach in it but your cards just cost so little like many of your spells cost negative mana so you just inherently like can do that stuff because of how vintage is and then you just like have a bunch of broken cards that generally you can put them together to win the game there so and also sprite dragons just get really really big because they trigger off of your moxes and stuff yeah something i was surprised when jarvin told me because i just shortcutted that card in my mind to whenever you cast it instead of sorcery yeah yeah that is a non-creature spell trigger yeah and then hull breacher probably just a pretty good card in a lot of matchups there's a bunch of card drawing going on it's also access to more mana right <laughs> right right the fact that it gives you mana rather than like cards in place of their cards or like Notion Thief does or something like that's pretty bonkers. Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to do a bunch of uh, actual playing vintage before I can give any kind of reasonable opinions about the format. Yep. My like, <laughs> I feel like I've had this thought every single time that I've looked at vintage decks for the past like 15 years, which is like, is, is Night's Whisper really good enough for Vintage? And it's like still in decks, like in 2021. Here's Night's Whisper, two mana, draw two cards. Okay. <laughs> I guess as a result of it being like not a mana gated format and often Vintage games come are like force you, misstep you, flusterstorm you, oops, we traded all of our cards. Literally going up like one card in Vintage can be just a huge deal, like game breaker. And so, like, that's enough that the two-mana draw two is is good enough, given that you do have access to the mana to cast it. But it just seems so low power level for this format. Hey, just wait until the Vintage decks can play of one mind, right? Then it all goes out the window. The divination that gets discounted. Wait, but how are they? Are we running, like, Young Pyromancer or something? 
yeah, that's a good start. Okay. Are the monks the monks aren't humans from no, monastery mentor, right? So that, that card works with level one mind as well. If you can keep a monastery mentor in play, that doesn't seem doable. It does seem very hard. Like I assume you just won the game with whatever if you untapped with a monastery mentor. Yes, it's just weird. It's just so weird. And the funny thing is that because of the way that these decks are composed with all of the filtering and card drawing and tutoring is like you run into all of these one-ofs that are not restricted. Just the nature of the format, like having options in your deck is important too. And so it's just like, you know, here's my... 15 restricted one-ofs and then here's my like 10 other one-ofs so these the demonic start... tutor one-ofs yeah even the demonic tutor is restricted so like but you have one demonic and one vampiric and you draw a lot of cards between havoc like you try to get your ancestral every game and yeah these deck lists are the least parsable things in the world well i guess like the worst is when somebody like links you their commander deck and you're like, I mean, my brain doesn't work like this. I can't look at a hundred cards and be like, ah, yes, nice deck. Usually the people who are the ones linking you their commander decks are also the ones who have the most to say about it, though. That's true. So, you can let them take care of it. Yeah. There is something really pleasing about Bazaar of Baghdad basking Ruwala, though. Oh, for the Hogak decks? Yeah. What like, do you mean by pleasing? I don't know. Just, like, the fact that... Just good, clean magic. Yeah, man. Discard some cards, and I just... However many Basking Root Wallace I got in my hand, I can put them in play. Oops, triggered my Vengevine with my Basking Root Wallace and my Hollow Ones. And here's Hogak. Yeah, like, that's really... I don't know. Like... Just good, clean magic. As far as this format is concerned, yeah. <laughs> It sounds degenerate in any other format, but here... Two two blue cards in this main deck, an Ancestral Recall and a Mental Misstep. <laughs> this format, man. I am ready. Well, that makes one of us. <laughs> not, not like... Re- I'm not <laughs> prepared. Pre- prepared, but I'm excited. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm excited too. Vintage is going to be a blast no matter what, I think. Yeah, I think so too. If not just for the novelty factor. Probably primarily for the novelty factor, but I don't know. Like, I I just think it's cool that there's a vintage tournament with some, like, actual money prizes on the line, and we get to do coverage of it, and I don't yeah. know. If you, if you get first place, you could buy a fifth of a paper vintage deck. Yeah, that's true. I mean, but that's always been the case with vintage tournaments. Yeah. Is like what's on what's the prize on the line? Well, the four cards in play on the table are worth ten times the amount, like the prize pool of this tournament. So, mostly it's for honor. Yes, it is funny that that's what it takes. Make the cost of the deck, make the ticket of admission, the price of admission, so massively high that the only reason anybody could possibly be playing this is for love of the game, and then you've like gotten your purity but at what cost like (laughs) well we can literally tabulate the cost (laughs) well but the costs go beyond the monetary like the cost of excluding people is you know an extraordinary burden to put on your format like that anything else about vintage i don't know anything about vintage what else would i say (laughs) 
I don't know. I I need to play some games, get with Jarvis, talk to him. Yeah. Is Paradoxical Outcome not a thing anymore? Only LSV cast that card in Vintage? I think so. I couldn't find it in this challenge. But I mean, we're only looking for like one event and then a daily. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't help that Goldfish doesn't really know what Vintage decks are called. So oh, no, they're just piles of colors. Right. Like, there's a bunch of UBGs. And also, like, this this Xerox deck that's based on Deathrite Shaman is just not the same deck as this deck that's based on Dreadhorde Arcanist and Lavinia. Like, they clearly aren't. They just share a bunch of cards because those are the cards you have to play in a reactive vintage deck. Because they're all restricted. Yes, they're all <laughs> restricted. And also, here are my four main deck Pyroblasts. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Which is only bad against shops, really. Yeah, you have to play blue. That's where all the restricted cards are. Yeah. Restricted cards are blue and artifacts. It is primarily crazy that, like, the, the two most powerful colors in Magic. Yes, no color and blue. It it is really funny that the vast all of the good cards in the first several years of Magic were blue, and they're all on the restricted list. And there's just no restricted cards from other colors on that list. There, there are like demonic tutor and stuff like that. Right? Yeah, I mean, there's a small handful, but there were only three colored cards in the power nine, and it's three blue cards. So, shout out to Time Twister for being part of the power nine. Oh yeah, I mean, we had to update the power nine, right? And it's just like depending on the format you're playing, a different card gets slotted in there. If you're if you're playing cube, it's soul ring. Here, time vault. Yeah, it's like Time Vault combo in, in actual vintage. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what other contenders there are. Probably Monastery Mentor. Monastery Mentor was an alpha. <laughs> Come on. Mm-hmm. Though I guess neither was Volcanic Island. <laughs> well. <laughs> Man, yeah, definitely had a weird like series of conversations on Twitter. I posted a screenshot from Reddit. Of somebody talking oh. about, like, yeah. somebody talking about how it was completely sane and normal to pay $2,000 for a set of trops, which, like, it's funny. Like, I began reading that post assuming they were being sarcastic and that it was going to go. Because, like, why would you ever describe something as completely sane and normal and be earnest about that statement? And then, obviously, like, most people also thought that it was funny and wrong, but there were quite a few people in the comments of that, like really defending magic cards being just unavailable to a lot of people. And that bothered me. Yeah. It's kind of sad in some ways that magic is a physical game because the price is so high now. I mean, the price is high regardless of the, form you the price is high on arena and the price is high on magic well, online yeah but i think a lot of that is due to like the evolution mm-hmm. of how things happened not necessarily like right if it was started if arena was started as a standalone there's no reason that it's like monetization couldn't be closer to like legends of rune terrors yeah or if another game had existed mm-hmm. other like before magic yeah it wouldn't have had to have been based off like baseball cards where you're trying to collect individual pieces that have like distinct rarities. Right. Although, I mean, I think that's probably like a huge part of the cachet of it, which made it catch on in the first place. But now that the 
concept of the game and the metagame and the evolution of deck building and stuff like that. Now that that to me is the important part and where the like beauty of the game is to gate that off from people uh, in the various and sundry ways that it is gated off from people. It's just not something I'm cool with. It's, it's a little too rough. Yeah. But that's a that's a topic for a whole other podcast episode. Maybe a whole other like podcast, but <laughs> well, do you want to do a question? Yeah, that's we like got an one. interesting one. Sure. Uh, Prodigal Engineer asked in the Discord a couple days ago. Basically, this playgroup was trying to make a house rule to make player draw a more interesting decision point. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to know like rules variants that could help it. And he had a question that was succinct. Uh, could the present play draw rules for constructed be improved? And if so, how? Yes, they could. I mean, I'm totally sympathetic to that. It is nonsense that in every single constructed format, if you win the die roll, you choose to go first. And in most of the constructed formats, that gives you a significant advantage. Like, we have to be able to do better than that, right? Like, this can't be the the best possible. As far as ideas to fix it, I'm sorry, I'm a problems man, not a solutions man. I was empathetic to the... This is something I would like to try a bunch of different solutions to, because there's a bunch that are wrong, I'm sure, because it's really hard to do that. Uh, Someone suggested, like, a treasure, like the player on the draw gets a treasure. Which is really Hearthstone-esque. Yeah. But I mean, it kind of works in Hearthstone. You can try it out. Yeah, Hearthstone is a little different, though. You're guaranteed a land drop every turn, and you go all the way up to 10. Like, the, the mana system is pretty different in Hearthstone. An extra treasure on the draw, like, I don't know, the fact that you can bank that, and in Magic, like, one mana difference on a key turn is so tremendous. I mean, I do want to give something to the player on the draw, for sure. I wonder if that's just, like, a huge thing. Like, imagine playing against, I, like... I don't know. Like, the mono blue standard deck, like, the, the dive down deck in standard, and they just had a treasure. Like, they just got to cast their dive down at some point in the game without having to do anything to leave it up. All right, let me turn this on its face. Imagine playing against the mono blue deck in standard on the play, and they're on the play. Like, the deck is completely more powerful in the play than draw. Right, right. But, like, that mean that's a important weakness for that deck to have. And because of the deck, the, the way that that deck plays out, having one extra mana at some point in the game, that, that deck gets to be effectively on the play every game then. Because the difference of having dive down mana up when you need it versus not is the game. So having a treasure every time would be pretty wild, I think. I don't know. You could like improve the number or like quality of cards that you get in an opener if you're on the draw. Like you could draw an extra card. You already kind of already do that. You could yeah. like scry. Well, so I mean, I think that there's a couple of things that I draw particular inspiration from. Kind of the the sort of clunky, but also way that I like addressing this is more Knights of the White Orchid. There can be cards that are explicitly better on the draw. I don't know how many cards there can be, but most cards are almost explicitly better on the play. And so I wonder how much, like, a change in design philosophy to try to create specifically these cards. 
And it might just be that there's a very limited pool of designs that satisfy that requirement. I, I think there are a very limited pool of cards that satisfy design requirement. Like, way fewer than most people would think. Yeah. And I also think it's a bad idea to design a bunch of those cards, essentially forcing people to play them because they'll be on the draw sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, if they're good enough. Yeah. I like, mean, the White Orchid's a nice one because it's, it's a one of, and it's in a bad color. Yes. And it's in a color that does like playing a lot of small creatures and typically is far behind on land. Mm -hmm. Like, it's nice in that it's kind of like a perfect storm of yeah. events there. But that's just not true for most other colors and other cards. Right. So the other place that I draw a lot of inspiration from in this question is the fact that if when you look at limited, the gap between, you know, it, a lot of constructed formats and you look at who wins on the play versus who wins on the draw. And there's a big gap, it like up to 10 percentage points. Like there have been standard formats where the player on the play wins 55% of the time. It's not always that high, but often it feels that bad to be on the draw. If you look at the any limited format, that advantage pretty much disappears. So it's not inherent to Magic the Gathering that being on the play is such a huge advantage. It's inherent to the way we build our constructed decks with this level of consistency, with this, like, you have to be doing this particular, like, you have to have gotten traction by this point on turn two or three of the game, and then the, like, massive haymakers start coming out on turn four. I, I am not a good enough, like, game designer. It's not my thing, and I haven't really... I don't think I could delve really deep in and be like, this is what we gotta do to make Constructed more, like, limited. But, like, a version of Magic the Gathering exists where being on the play is just, like, not really an advantage. And it's often correct to draw in limited. That's real. That's a thing. I can tackle some of, like, why that is. Mm -hmm. Because it's like you described, but I think we're constructed being on the play is so much stronger is because there are cards that exist, like, four or five mana, six mana cards that if you play them a turn early, your opponent's on the back foot. And if you untap with them, they're not dealt with immediately. You, you get even game. further ahead and yeah. you get to play another card. In limited, that doesn't happen nearly as often. Mm -hmm. Like, you have bombs every now and then, but they're rare. They're literally rare. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, like, a lot of the card advantage from Throne of Eldraine, Oko is the big exception, but... They're all inchney, like the Edgewell Innkeeper, Lucky Clover, Trail of Crumbs stuff. That's all. You never run out of cards in Throne of Eldraine, but you're not hammering home your advantage every single time mm -hmm. because you have to put together pieces and your cards aren't like inherently powerful by themselves. So shifting card advantage less on. Playing a four drop or a five drop that has to be dealt with immediately and then keeps going and basically wins the game for you. Two more put together your pieces to get your advantages would be a way to do it. Yeah. Or to shift it away from permanent based bursts to like large spells. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, back in Invasion, one of the best cards was Factor Fiction, right? It was a huge, huge, powerful card. 
but it was a one-shot spell, and there was a ton of counter magic at the time. So even though the person on the play was always advantaged, even if you could slip through Factor Fiction, there's a lot more counterplay because it was a one-time thing, and you had a lot more options available to deal with it. Right. And, yeah, the response to the Factor Fiction could be, all right, take this opportunity and create a window to resolve my own Factor Fiction, and now we're on an even footing. Whereas, like, you know... If I play my four drop and then you play the same, you know, I play my fires of invention, you can't respond by playing your own fires of invention on your turn. Like you're going to die when I untap with my fires of invention. So I, I definitely see that. Um, I do think generally like focusing magic games on the board is a good thing. It's a little more tactile and a little more you know, you're, you're using more of the resources of the game in particular when you're making use of the combat step, which I'm not saying that constructed magic makes great use of the combat step, certainly. Um, but I think that should be a goal is having that be part of it. I think one of the culprits too is like consistency and, and maybe the London Mulligan is part of this too, but you know, like playing against teamer wreck and just being like, yeah, I mean on turn four or turn three because of gross spiral, but you know, when they have four mana, I just, like, have to be prepared for Wilderness Reclamation to come into play. And there's trade-offs for consistency either way. Like, you remove consistency from decks by, like, you know, saying, okay, you can only have three ofs now or whatever. Okay, yeah, that removes some of the consistency, but that makes it harder to build, like, cohesive decks that make sense and operate in a in the way that you want your deck to operate, and that removes some of the fun from deck building. But maybe, you know, that replaces it with other things. So, like, I got to patch this up with alternative plans and different ways of approaching the game. I, I, I don't know that the play draw thing... I think if there were like a simple small rules change, like, you know, treasure token or whatever that actually does fix it, we probably would have seen it by now. I think that probably fixing the play draw thing requires a pretty solid overhaul of card design and like what constructed magic is. So I, I don't like harping on this because I think a lot of the complaint about this is overblown, mm -hmm. but it's kind of very planeswalker focused. Like, they're, they're a card type that exists to gain value over time and reward you for being on the play. Mm -hmm. Again, magic is, like, modern magic is just kind of in that space where you know, Planeswalkers are marquee cards. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. And, and, like, standard right now, I think, is not super play draw dependent. Certainly not to the level that it has been in the past. And a big part of that is we don't have very many good planeswalkers. We don't have fires of invention. We don't have wilderness reclamation. There aren't all of these main deck cards that you slam and decks like rogues are able to play a reactive game where it's really not, I don't mind being on the draw. Like I can trade this, this drown in the lock for your thing on whatever turn in the game. So there's certainly ways that formats can be constructed to make them make it less important. That said, I'm not going to choose to be on the draw in any game in this standard format. So we're, we're not, if the ideal is make you think about whether you want to be on the play or the draw, like we're certainly not anywhere close to that. Yeah. I think I agree that the problem with play draw is not really something that can be solved with a simple rules change. It's more of a design style problem. Yeah. Cause I don't, I don't know of a rule that can 
flip the problem or make it even an interesting decision whether you choose play or draw. In my opinion, one is always going to be better the way Magic stands right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the original brilliant rules thing that make to make it work at all is summoning sickness like having one player go first wouldn't work at all without summoning sickness and what a creative solution to that from the like very beginning of the game so you know i i I just have always thought that that was a really cool inclusion that makes the game work where it wouldn't otherwise but certainly not enough anymore and wilderness reclamation doesn't have summoning sickness that's that is true (laughs) this is the opposite of summoning sickness whatever that is it's got enchantment haste for sure yeah i mean that's all i have to say about that he says after just like monologuing about it for a while i I monologued a little in the in the middle yeah we can we can take turns monologuing every now and then yeah i don't know you got anything else nope i think i'm good i know it's probably not a great answer for prodigal engineer but Honestly, I don't know if there is a great answer yeah. out there. I I don't have one, certainly. Nothing clean. Cool. Well, thanks, everybody, so much for listening. We really appreciate your time. If you would like to lend us some support, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to find us on social media, I am tweeting from at CCR underscore grindcast. Lee is also on Twitter. I'm at Lee McLeo. Thanks so much for listening. And have a great week. Bye.